Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Major SCOTUS Case, What Waters Can Be Regulated Under the Clean Water Act. Please welcome our host, Darren Bax, Senior Research Fellow in Regulatory Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon. As was mentioned, my name is Darren Bax. I'm a Senior Research Fellow in Regulatory Policy at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank you for joining us today as we discuss a new Supreme Court case, Sackett versus EPA which can prove to be one of the most important environmental and property rights cases in recent memory. Just two weeks ago, the Supreme Court decided to hear that case in this case. So under the Clean Water Act, one of the most important issues is what does the language waters of the United States or WOTUS mean? The answer to this question is really important because it clarifies what waters the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers can regulate under the statute. For decades, these agencies have taken a very broad view of this language, enabling the federal government to regulate an incredible amount of waters. This includes trying to regulate waters that an ordinary person wouldn't even think is a water body, and trying to regulate water, uh, regulate what most people consider to be dry land. These agencies ignored the primary role that states are supposed to play in addressing water pollution, seeking to regulate in a manner more consistent with the local zoning board than our federal agency. Today, we're gonna to discuss this important case, the issues in the case, and why the case is so important. Joining me today is Tony Francois, who's a partner at Briscoe, Ivester and Basil, LLP, and co-counsel with the Pacific Legal Foundation for the Sacketts in Sackett versus EPA. I'm also joined by my heritage colleague, Paul Larkin, who's a senior legal research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And to get a real sense of why this case is so important to, pri to private property owners, we're joined by Jack LaPant, who is a California farmer rancher, and unfortunately he's a victim of Clean Water Act enforcement abuse. In addition to our discussion, we wanna hear from you. We'll be making time to answer some of your questions during the last part of today's program. So please do send along your questions. So let's get right to it. Tony, I'd like to ask you a few questions right from the outset to help provide a simple overview of the case. So first, sure, when the Supreme Court, that'd be great. So first, when the Supreme Court, um, when is the Supreme Court going to hear this case? And what is the actual question the court's going to be answering? So thanks, Darren. The Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments in Sackett versus EPA, uh, most likely this fall, either in October or November. And the briefing will be filed on the case over the next several months leading up to that. And the question that the Supreme Court is asking is, what's the rule, what's the legal rule that federal agencies and regulated parties uh, and courts are supposed to use to figure out if a wetland uh, is regulated by the Clean Water Act? And um, that's a difficult question to answer. The courts, the agencies, and the public have struggled with that for several years. So in the case, Tony, you're representing the Sacketts. Who are the Sacketts and, and why did you and Pacific Legal Foundation decide to even bring the case? The Sacketts are a 
pretty ordinary couple. They live in Idaho. Uh, many years ago, uh, they bought a, uh, a vacant lot, <laughs> um, you know, a, a home lot in a mostly built out subdivision in northern Idaho, in the Idaho Panhandle near uh, Priest Lake. It's a beautiful area. And they had envisioned building their dream home uh, on this lot. And they were in the process of breaking ground to, to build the house in 2007 uh, when um, uh, staff members of both the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Army, their, their Corps of Engineers, uh, came to the job site, uh, ordered their uh, crew to stop working on the site, uh, and declared that their subdivision vacant lot uh, is a federally regulated uh, wetland that is subject to their authority under the Federal Clean Water Act. Uh, they demanded uh, an explanation of this from the, uh, from the federal agencies, especially the EPA. Uh, because when they had got all their permits uh, from their local authority, Bonner County, Idaho, nobody had told them there was any federal permit required or that there were any federal issues with their, their vacant lot. They eventually, uh, through their local attorney, were uh, put in contact with the Civic Legal Foundation, uh, which sued on their behalf in 2008 to challenge the Environmental Protection Agency's assertion that it basically had land use control over their vacant lot under the Clean Water Act. So this case has been going on for a long time, really. So it started in 2008? It was filed in 2008. Uh, the first four years of the case uh, were all about whether they could even file the case, whether the federal courts had to hear their uh, challenge to EPA's assertion of control over their property. And uh, my Pacific Legal colleague, Pacific Legal Foundation colleague, Damian Schiff, uh, argued on their behalf in 2012 in the Supreme Court of the United States um, over the uh, threshold question of whether they could even sue EPA to, to challenge this assertion of authority. Uh, the Supreme Court said, yes, of course they can. And since then, so since late 2012, the case has been on remand, uh, first in the District of Idaho, uh, for several years uh, of judicial delays, unfortunately, and then more recently on appeal in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. And uh, both of those courts, unfortunately, ruled for EPA that, that based on a, more or less based on a two-page memo uh, the EPA had adequately documented that uh, their their vacant lot is, in their opinion, a wetland, and also in their opinion, close enough to some other regulated water body that they're allowed to claim control over it under the Clean Water Act. This is the question then that uh, Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, joined by my firm, has asked the Supreme Court to examine. What is the legal rule for whether a, a wetland, which is not a not a water body, it's it's land, but land that's got some aquatic characteristics, whether that is closely enough connected to an actually navigable river or lake uh, that the federal agencies can regulate it under the Clean Water Act. So, Tony, kind of the a really important overview question, I think, is 
briefly, which will be difficult. Um, <laughs> could you just explain what happened in the 2006 case for Ponos versus EPA and why that case is so important to the SAC, to the SACI case? Sure. So the, the SAC, the SACIT's dispute with EPA started in 2007 and that was the first year after a 2006 decision of the Supreme Court. Yeah, and that's in the Rapanos case, which Pacific Legal Foundation also handled in the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court was trying to answer the same question in that case. How closely connected to, um, you know, a navigable river or lake does a wetland have to be in order for the EPA or the Army to, to regulate it, to federally regulate it? And one of the unfortunate aspects of the Rapanos decision is that there's no majority opinion in the case. So there are four justices that agreed that the, uh, the army in that case was overreaching, was, was trying to regulate too broadly. And then there was a fifth justice uh, who also agreed that the army had gone overboard, but for different reasons. And so the four justice we call the plurality uh, which was authored by the late Justice Scalia, said that a wetland has to be um, so closely connected to some other regulated water body that you can't really tell them apart. And so I like to use the phrase like a shoreline wetland. Um, or you could think of it as just like if, if you're walking along the shore of a lake, you might hit like a blister or a, you know, a little output from the lake. That kind of wetland may be regulated, uh, according to the Rapanos plurality, but not wetlands that are actually separated by any dry land from, uh, from a navigable river or lake. And that uh, plurality opinion would have provided a fairly clear and also fairly uh, modest um, limit on um, federal authority under the Clean Water Act for wetlands. The, the fifth Justice's opinion, um, it was Justice Kennedy, agreed that the Army was regulating too broadly uh, in terms of how far from a, um, a regulated water body it was going inland to regulate uh, wetlands. But he had a, a rather different rationale. And what he said was that, yes, the, the EPA and the Army can regulate wetlands that are not you know, directly connected to a, a lake or a river uh, if though, if they have what he described as a significant nexus, which is in practice, well, even in his opinion, but then even more so in practice, a very complex, time-consuming and expensive um, set of tests, uh, hydrologic, biological, uh, botanical <laughs> um, um, analyses to determine whether either an individual wetland or a complex of wetlands is um, close enough, can closely enough connected to some downstream water body. And um, the, the upshot of, of that significant nexus test um, is that it's very, 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 very difficult for a landowner to know if a wetland on their property is regulated by the Clean Water Act or not. Uh, and it requires an enormous amount of money and consulting expertise to even tentatively answer that question. And then subsequent to the Rapanos decision in 2006 that provided these two tests, uh, the Scalia plurality, clear kind of bright line if it's actually intermingled with 
the navigable water, it can be regulated. Or on the other hand, the, the, the Kennedy significant nexus test, which is much broader and much more vague. The lower courts have almost okay. universally adopted uh, Justice Kennedy's concurring significant nexus test. Uh, and as a result, since 2006, uh, in most parts of the country, uh, landowners have had to deal with the significant nexus test to try to figure out uh, if their property is regulated. And regulators have used the expansiveness and the kind of uh, ambiguity and vagueness of the significant nexus test to uh, really push the outer limits of their authority. And so the opportunity with the Sackett case uh, has been to uh, ask the Supreme Court to revisit this divided opinion from Rapanos and replace it with a clear majority that sets a, uh, a clear standard along the lines of Justice Scalia's um, you know, close connection or, or shoreline wetland test uh, and get away from the, uh, the ambiguity and the expense and the complexity uh, that has been uh, the order of the day since the Rapanos decision under the significant nexus test. So that's great, Tony, great overview. Um, Jack, I'd like to turn it to you. Um, so thanks so much for participating today and providing us a practical on the front lines perspective. Could you just tell us what happened with you and the Army Corps of Engineers? Yes. Um, I, uh, first of all, this piece of property I purchased in 2011, I owned it for one year, planted 900 acres of winter wheat on it, which had been in winter wheat many times in its history. Um, upon planting the wheat, I was, I sold the property to a, a buyer. Uh, before I sold it, I had it studied by an engineering company and they did a, a delineation on it. And while I owned it, I presented that delineation to the federal government. Um, and the, the buyer of the property then turned around and sold the property to a, a large company and then they started after the fact developing it into orchard uh, and they started they brought in all their big equipment and started cutting and filling areas and then they turned around and started ripping it and at that point in time the core came in and cited them and excuse me they, they gave them a cease and desist order and everything stopped and then we sat until 2013, and for the next four and a half years, the Army Corps was just going through paperwork, trying to figure out if they were going to cite anyone. And in the mid-2016, five years after I owned the property, I was cited for uh, destroying these vernal pools. Um, the problem was is that there were two owners that were in the process of developing this into orchard and the army corps really wouldn't look at the time that I owned the property. They only looked at what the property looked like after this had all been done. Um, and it, uh, the idea that I had farmed the property exactly the way it had been farmed many times in the past, didn't seem to have any meaning to them. They just, they, they, 
They wouldn't even acknowledge that. Before I started, before I purchased the property, I spent about four months studying the property. And I went to the different government agencies that we were familiar with, uh, Soil Conservation Service and the FSA. And they presented documentation that the farm that I was thinking about purchasing and then eventually purchased was a, a active farm. It had a 500 acre wheat allotment and it had out of 1,967 acres, it had 1,863 acres of farmland. Uh, I met with those departments and asked or told them what my plans were. And they agreed that if I did exactly what had happened in the past, as far as farming, I wouldn't have any problem. And so I did. Again, I planted 900 acres of wheat. After I planted it, I immediately reported to the same departments that I had completed that project. Um, once I was cited, the Army, once the Army Corps got involved, uh, everything changed quite a little bit. Um, the, at one meeting in, in Sacramento, the lead with the Army Corps explained to me, and these are his words, Mr. LaPant, we do not own your property but we own all the water coming from the heavens. Wow. I have, that on, I have that on tape. Wow. Uh, uh, so you're being provided for normal activities, normal farming activities. Right. And my question to him at that moment, I said, then could you show me where you got the authority to do so? And he just kind of snickered and, and moved on. Um, uh, the whole next five years was we would try to explain what we had done, try to show them that the only thing we did was run a disc across it and plant a wheat crop on it. Um, we did at one time when the ground got very hard in late July and early August, we did use a little chisel to open the dirt up to about six or eight inches but that was the place where they decided that I wasn't opening the land up to run a disc. I was rip, deep ripping it and destroying everything. But I did, out of the 900 acres, I did about 60 acres that way. The rest of it was all dist. So. Um, well, well, thanks, Jack. I appreciate that. I'm sorry to hear what's happened. And I did, Paul, I'd like to turn to you um, you've done an incredible amount of work on WOTUS, and I'd like to discuss that now. So, Paul, one of the biggest problems, and we've, we've heard this, with the entire WOTUS issue is property owners have just no idea how to comply with the law. Can you explain why that's a problem, not just as a practical matter, but as a legal matter? Certainly. But I think in order to do that, you have to step back for a minute and look at the entirety of the discussion we've had so far and the entire, almost all of the discussion that has come up under the Clean Water Act. The focus entirely on the Clean Water Act has always been on the purposes that it serves, which is not to try to protect the integrity of the nation's waters, not just for navigation, but for drinkability, um, as well as the need to have an expansive understanding of what the term waters of the United States means so that basically anything wet can be regulated so that we can protect 
water for navigation and drinking. There's a problem with looking at it that way, and it's a very simple one. The Clean Water Act can be enforced through criminal prosecutions. Why does that matter? First of all, the Supreme Court has said that a statute can't have one interpretation for civil cases and another for criminal cases. That would be like having one law for Athens and another for Rome, as Cicero once said. And the Supreme Court has said, in our federal system, we're, we're not going to do that. We may let the states in, uh, apply their law one way, but federal law has to be uniform. And that means whatever the Clean Water Act means in civil proceedings, it has to mean the same thing in criminal proceedings. And since there is what is called the rule of lenity in criminal proceedings, that governs. The rule of lenity basically says, if you've read a statute and you can't figure out what it means, the tie goes to the defendant. In baseball, it goes to the runner. In law, it goes to the private party. Well, here, that creates a problem. Why? Because there is a doctrine that deals with the unintelligibility of the Clean Water Act. It's known as the void for vagueness doctrine. It stems from the proposition that you can't be held criminally liable unless there is a law in effect. A, second, a first order application of that is that the law must be understandable. As Justice Gorsuch said only three years ago, a vague law is no law at all. It's not materially different from a law written in a foreign language or something that was written in a binary system, just zeros and ones. It has to be understandable. And it has to be understandable by a person of average intelligence, by an average person, by a person of common intelligence. What does that mean? It has to be understood not by the head of the Scripps Institute. It has to be understood by the people who work in construction jobs on the site or people just happen to own property and have water on it or something that may be an approximation as you know we heard from tony that you know basically what a wetland is um is an oxymoronic term used to describe the fact that it's land but it has some wet features the same thing can happen in all sorts of different areas well if you take a look at the text of the statute, all it says is waters of the United States, which doesn't tell you which particular waters matter. After all, a term has to be sufficiently clear, not only so that it can be understood, it has to be sufficiently clear so that it can be applied in real life by average people. And as Jack and Tony have mentioned, it this particular term in the Clean Water Act requires not only lawyers to become involved, but geologists, hydrologists, and the like. People, in other words, who have skills that far exceed what the average person has. The criminal law doctrine and the constitutional law doctrine of the void for vagueness requires that a private party be able to look at a body of water or a parcel of land and know whether it is one of the waters of the United States. The problem right now is no one knows how to do that. And don't take my word for it. Take Justice Samuel Alito's word for it, because he made that point in a concurring opinion in Sackett 1, the case that the Pacific Legal Foundation and Tony litigated some time ago successfully. He said nobody knows what this means. Now, the agency has tried to come in and say, well, you can tell what it means by looking at our regulations. It's not clear an agency can make up for vagueness in a statute 
through its regulations, and there are a host of good arguments why they can't. But the problem is the agency's regulations are just as vague and indecipherable as the statute itself. One last point, and then I'll get back to letting you ask other, giving you the opportunity to ask other people questions. Think about what this statute does. It requires people to get legal advice as to what a particular body of water or parcel of land means. In fact, it requires more than that. It requires also expert doctoral level advice in order to decide whether this particular parcel or body is a water of the United States. Nowhere else in Anglo-American criminal law has that ever been required. The obligation is on the government, the legislature. It has to define terms in the statutes that are sufficiently clear so that the average person, the average truck driver, the average bus driver, the average person who works at a grocery store can look at this, the term, know what it means, and apply it in real life. In 1971, the Supreme Court struck down an ordinance in the city of Cincinnati that made it a crime to annoy passersby. Now, there are a lot of things that each of us might think are annoying, like people playing music loudly in an uh, elevator or talking loudly in an elevator. But that term can mean different things to different people, and the Supreme Court said it was unconstitutionally vague. If the term annoying is unconstitutionally vague, the term waters of the United States is as well, certainly as the government has interpreted it. So what the Supreme Court should do, I think, is figure out what's the best remedy. One way would just be to prohibit criminal application of the Clean Water Act and send the problem back to Congress for it to address it. So if you look at this, not simply from the perspective of pollution and not simply from the perspective of civil actions to enforce the anti-pollution elements in the Clean Water Act, if you look at it through the eyes of the criminal law, I think you'll see that there are numerous reasons why this is an extraordinarily problematic provision. Thanks, Paul. I'm gonna, Tony and Paul, I'm going to go through a, a series of um, legal questions, see if we can relatively quickly. So, Tony, there are, in, in Rapanos, there, um, yeah, the plurality opinion, three Supreme, current Supreme Court justices joined Justice Scalia in the Rapanos plurality opinion. A thoughtful opinion. And there's nothing I can think of that's occurred that should alter the legal thinking in that opinion, you know, and no development that I can think of. Why shouldn't they just finish what they started in 2006? And do you think they will? Well, that's a very good question. Um, there are, uh, as you mentioned, three justices who joined that opinion who are still on the court, Chief Justice, Justice Alito, and Justice uh, Thomas. And um, the, the Sackett, the Rapanos case had to do both with wetlands and then also um, connection of those wetlands to actually navigable rivers or lakes by way of uh, drainage ditches and small creeks that themselves aren't navigable. And so there's a fair amount of the opinion that um, discusses, the, the plurality opinion, that discusses what the nature of these sort of connecting ditches and little creeks needs to be and practice has shown since then that even the plurality's more restrictive view of those connecting ditches and creeks 
uh, has allowed the agencies to regulate quite broadly. Um, I would say clearly more broadly than the than the plurality thought they were allowing. So, if there were a case that really got into um, the types of creeks and ditches and things like that that uh, that could connect a wetland to a uh, a regulated water body, then there are some things in the Rapanos plurality that might warrant uh, closer attention so that the rule that comes out of it were uh, tighter, if you will. Uh, in the Sackett case, uh, the Sackett's property is, um, you know, it's got like paved roads on two sides of it and other properties on the other two sides. It's got no surface connection at all with any other water body. So it would be simple for the court to simply say the, the plurality rule for wetlands resolves this case. And in a majority, instead of a plurality opinion, agree with Justice Scalia that if there's no surface connection, then there's no Clean Water Act regulation. So Paul, when I get to a kind of a constitutional question, so I'm really interested in how the Commerce Clause plays into this whole issue. So for example, in the 2001 Supreme Court case, Saw Waste Agency of Northern Cook County versus the Army Corps, the court explained where an administrative interpretation of a statute invokes the outer limits of Congress's power, we expect a clear indication that Congress intended that result. So Paul, can, can you explain how the Commerce Clause informs um, what's going on here and what should inform the court? and? and should limit what Congress and agencies do as it relates to WOTUS? The plurality opinion by Justice Scalia focused on this statute from the perspective of navigability, because it's navigation, commerce, that Congress has the authority to regulate. There is the Commerce Clause that is at the heart of this matter, and it allows Congress to regulate commerce between the states. There is no pollution clause. Now, Congress certainly has the power to regulate pollution insofar as it affects navigation. But if it simply is a matter of affecting pollution, Congress would have to come up with a good justification for why that also affects commerce. The problem is the agencies haven't done that. And that's because the agencies have relied on Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion in Rapanos. And the per perspective that he took is that the Clean Water Act is not designed to protect navigation, it's designed to prevent pollution. But that leads you to a horrible scenario where virtually every water in the United States that is in some way connected with some other water could be covered, even though that's not what Congress had in mind. Congress was trying to deal with the problem of companies using pipes to dump all sorts of waste and ha even hazardous waste into the waters. I mean, the, basically, before the Clean Water Act became law, the old adage that dilution is the solution to pollution was the go-by for businesses, and Congress wanted to stop that. Congress didn't want to stop the average person from building a home, even if there was water in the vicinity of the home that had an origin a hundred or more miles away. So what you've, you've seen is the agencies take the power they have and expand it tremendously. I don't think this court is going to read the statute that way. Keep in mind, the Supreme Court has just twice 
beat back efforts by the Biden administration to try to expand its authority in the face of a pandemic. The Supreme Court held that, at least in the context of a stay, agency, this in, in particular, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, lacks the authority to regulate landlord-tenant relations and to keep people from being evicted for non-payment. The court also held that OSHA lacks the authority to regulate through its workplace safety rules the problems that result as a, an incident of the pandemic that we've been dealing with. So the Supreme Court has changed, but the Supreme Court has changed in the direction of requiring Congress clearly to say what authorities agencies have. And the sorts of interpretations that the agencies adopted in 2015 that they may well adopt again in their new rulemaking goes well beyond what I think the Supreme Court would say the agencies have the authority to do. Thanks, Paul. And Tony, I always want to get to a really specific question in this case really quickly, and that deals with wetlands, but specifically what does um, adjacent mean? So in, the, in a lot of the regulations, the 2015 Clean Water Rule, which is the Obama Rule, has a very broad definition of adjacent, I think in a way that nobody would kind of think that means adjacent. So what do you think adjacent should mean? What should wetlands include? No, that's a great question, Darren. And it's worth um, starting the answer to that by noting that, you know, except in one really kind of cryptic provision tucked away in a weird little procedural part of the act, the act just says that the government can regulate navigable waters, which it defines as waters of the United States. And the act nowhere says, and in general, you may regulate uh, the wetlands adjacent to the navigable waters. This is a this is a regulatory elaboration of the agencies in which they have said in their attempt to define waters in the United States, well, it includes adjacent wetlands. And I think the common person's understanding of adjacent is next to. Okay, my hand is adjacent to my other hand. What uh, what the agencies though say in their regulations is that uh, for a long time what they've said is adjacent means bordering. Okay, yeah, bordering. Contiguous, well, yeah, contiguous, or neighboring. And, you know, neighborhoods can be big places. And so the the, the agencies uh, have insisted, for example, that the Sackett's wetland, well, wetland, we, we've contested that it's even a wetland, but that the Sackett's vacant lot is neighboring Priest Lake, which is 300 feet away behind two rows of houses. And so they've taken the view that, you know, adjacent is not the normal English term next to. And instead, it's some technical term, meaning um, <laughs> uh, somewhere in the vicinity of. And then they viewed that expansively. So that's one of the reasons that the, you know, an approach like the Rapanos plurality will be important for providing clarity for landowners and also uh, restraining agency authority along the lines that Paul mentioned to those things that provide clear guidance, which is to say adjacent should only mean like right next to and intermingled with. Thanks, Tony. Yes, Darren, that neighboring language has always driven me crazy. Go ahead, Paul. 
Darren, think. Uh, let me offer you another perspective, another way to look at it. Um, it is a tort for a physician to exceed the limits of the permission that a patient gives him during surgery. Now, if a patient is given the surgeon permission uh, to remove a cancerous tumor, the doctor can also remove an adjacent area so that there is a buffer zone, if you will, uh, to make sure that there is a clean margin so that there are no cancer cells still remaining. You can't start going around the rest of the body and just acting, you know, willy nilly. It has to be immediately next to what the patient has given you, given you the authority to remove. Something similar is happening here or should happen here. Uh, you know, adjacent should mean next door touching. It doesn't mean it can be three states away. So, you know, what's happening is people are looking at it from the pollution perspective rather than the navigability perspective. And what they're saying is, well, pollution is present three states away, so we have to regulate this particular land or this particular water to protect against that. That goes way too far. I definitely agree. And Jack, I want to get you back into this. And we got a question from the audience member. It's a very practical question. It kind of follows up on what you said. And the question is, was the core just... Was it the chiseling activity that the core objected to or the, the, is it called the disking too? Was it the chiseling that they were concerned about? In the, in their original questioning, they had a problem with the chisel. Uh, the chisel could have been, if it was dropped all the way down, it could have the ability to chisel about 16 to 18 inches, but I had no need to do that. So all I was trying to do is break up the surface so I could, run a disc across it and, and build a good seed bed. And then in the final, um, final days of the court case, they then, the, the federal government, the DOJ, decided in their wisdom that any disking, a disc turning over the soil was uh, destroying the land. And at that point in time, they were just grasping at straws. In other words, you by taking a disc or a rototiller in your backyard and working your ground, you were destroying the, the ground itself. Thanks, Jack. Uh, look, I, I'd be very upset at myself if I didn't ask this next question, Paul. And it, it gets to kind of the federal, a federalism issue. Um, so the, the clean and I won't the Clean Water Act itself stresses that states are supposed to play a primary role in addressing water pollution, and I, I think it's important to know the language also says it's a policy of Congress to preserve and protect that primary responsibility. Um, so I, I guess the, the the question I have is, what what role should the state role play as the the court considers the Saka case? The Supreme Court has, over the last few decades, made it particularly clear that the most important evidence of congressional intent and congressional policy are the operative words of a statute. So what the court should do is read the statute to see what it says. Now, if that is part of the statute, then, of course, the Supreme Court should read it. But it could also play a rule that serves as a tiebreaker. 
if it's not clear what the language of the statute means in some instances, the proposition you mentioned could be read to require the court to defer to what the state's normal responsibility is rather than the federal government's. Keep in mind that the Clean Water Act basically is only one tool in the entire toolkit that the federal government has. The federal government could decide to use its funding authority to give the states an additional incentive to do what the federal government wants as a condition for receiving funds rather than as a tool of enforceability that can be done in either a criminal or a civil action. The problem here is that they want, Congress just threw in criminal sanctions without thinking about all of the problems that could result from the rather vague terms that it has used. The result is to put on the average person a burden found nowhere else in the law that is an utterly unreasonable burden, that is retaining a lawyer and retaining other experts as well. Congress, I doubt, thought that's what they were getting at. And maybe the provision in the statute you mentioned will help persuade the Supreme Court the text of the statute shouldn't be read to lead to that result. Yeah, I think, Paul, I think the plurality really kind of uh, would agree with you. And uh, in Rapanos, Rap you know, they, they were very concerned about the, the agencies kind of acting like a local zoning board. And they said, we ordinarily expect a clear and manifest statement from Congress to authorize an unprecedented intrusion into traditional state authority. And I think that's something that I, I personally think will play a big part. And it's this kind of dynamic. Tony, I want to get to you. Um, I want to cover a couple other waters um, because it's very possible that we're going to get a very a broad, we're not just going to focus on wetlands. We're going to talk about these other waters that are impacted and what actually are part of the actual definition of Waters in the United States. So, given their important their importance in connection to the WOTUS definition, can you briefly briefly explain what the intermittent and ephemeral waters are and how the court should address them? Sure. the uh, The regulations that the agencies have had in place for um, for many decades, in addition to regulating navigable rivers and lakes. Uh, they add a category called tributaries, which are non-navigable uh, creeks and streams that flow into navigable ones. And there have been some controversy about um, the agency's practice of adding this, this category. Um, and within that category, some of these little creeks flow year round and in different parts of the country, uh, particularly more in the east, they're more likely to be, as we say, perennial year-round year flow. Then uh, as you get farther west and in a, even in parts of the eastern United States, there are some that only flow part of the year. We call those intermittent. Uh, and then on the extreme end are ephemeral drainages, which really only flow when it's raining uh, and as that rainfall finishes running off. These are much more common in the desert regions of the Great Basin, you know, between the Rockies and the Sierras um, and in arid environments. And the, the controversy over those has been fairly significant because the contribution of particularly ephemeral drainages to, you know, the navigation capacity of, of downstream, you know, actual rivers 
that are used in commerce, um, you know, it's not entirely clear. It's probably negligible in a lot of cases. So as, as Paul has laid out, if you're thinking about it just in terms of whether the water eventually flows to a downstream water body and, and are thinking about it um, sort of exclusively in terms of potential pollution, the agencies want to regulate those ephemeral washes. On the other hand, if what you're thinking about is, you know, what uh, effects does that have on, do those ephemeral drainages have on navigation? And you're likely going to conclude that but they have less effect. In the Sackett case, um, there, there, are, there isn't much in the record that would you know, provide an opportunity for the court to get into the distinction between ephemeral and, and intermittent. Uh, there, is a, there is an issue with a ditch, and I, I can talk about ditches if you want, because that's the, um, that is the, a, a subcategory of tributaries, if you will, that has actually caused a lot of controversy. And both of the Rapanos opinions were very skeptical of, of, the, uh, of the agencies regulating roadside drainage ditches. And so if you're thinking of, okay, there's a, you know, there's the Mississippi River and then there's the Missouri River that, you know, drains into it. And along the Missouri, there's these little creeks and, okay, th those flow year round. That's one thing. But the idea that a farmer's drainage ditch to dry out his or her field or a city ditch alongside a road so that the road drains is somehow part of the network of uh, tributaries to navigable waters in the sense that the federal government has regulatory authority over them is, uh, is, is, is quite implausible. And so you know, the case, uh, the Sackett case may prove a good opportunity for the court to say something pretty definitive about the EPA and the United States Army regulating roadside drainage ditches in cities and counties across the country. So, Paul, I'm looking at you. I think you've got a point to make. Yes, I think it, it would be a mistake to assume that anybody who is taking the side of the Sacketts or the side of other property owners like Jack uh, is somehow claiming that the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers are acting in bad faith. That's, that's not my position. I'm sure it's not Jack's or Tony's as well. The problem is uh, this. You give the authority to do something in an area uh, to an agency uh, in theory because they have a particular skill at deciding how something works. Well, the EPA is concerned with pollution. So naturally, uh, if you tell them, to use this tool to stop pollution, they will try to find every imaginable way that a water can be polluted. The Army Corps of Engineers are engineers. Uh, you know, when lawyers look at a problem, they start to assign blame. When engineers look at a problem, they start thinking about how to fix it. So the Army Corps of Engineers is trying to figure out how to fix this in order to satisfy what the EPA is trying to do, which is protect the integrity of the waters. The problem is Congress has created essentially uh, an incentive for each of them to expand their authority beyond any reasonable limitation that Congress had. It doesn't mean they're acting in bad faith. It just means that they have tried to extend their authority to areas that Congress never remotely would have contemplated. If you had you know, grabbed a member by the collar and said, you know, are you covering something like what Jack described? 
the member of Congress would have said, of course not. And we hope that agencies will act reasonably. Well, maybe they're acting unreasonably, but they've certainly got enough room in the statute to act unreasonably. It has to be you know, called in and Congress needs to revisit it. I know a lot of the audience members, I know you've asked a lot of great questions and we're going to try to capture all of them. We're not going to be able to answer them all, obviously all. I've tried to integrate some of them uh, throughout during the discussion. I know we're running a little late, but I want to get to some of these questions. I just have a question for you, Tony, that's a question here on just kind of this myth that if you have a, if you have a Rapanos, the plurality turns into kind of becomes a majority opinion that, that somehow, you know, the, that would mean that you have a more narrow definition of what the federal government can regulate. And then the states are just going to drop the ball and that's going to hurt the environment. How, how would you, as a practical matter, kind of address that that concern? Well, I'm, I come to you today from uh, from California, and um, California, many other states have a very proactive state level environmental regulatory approach. And you know, the concern here in California is that the state is regulating more than the federal government even did before. So there's certainly state power to regulate impacts to water resources, uh, especially those over which the states have you know, clear regulatory authority. There always is, frankly, going to be some tension between regulating things that go in the water and things that happen on land on private property because rain falls and flows over the, over the land and into the water. Um, but, you know, in general, uh, it's the case that uh, that states do have the regulatory power uh, to uh, to deal with a lot of the uh, the resource impacts uh, that that are of concern to a lot of people, uh, and and many states have in fact uh, been proactive in doing that uh, over the last few years as uh, the prior administration acted to you know, restrain federal overreach in these areas. So, Jack, I'm going to ask you kind of a similar question. Um, you know, there's just kind of this assumption that oh, we need the government, the state or federal government to to regulate so that we can protect the environment and protect water. But can you tell me why can't I mean, tell me about farmers and how they are they, you know, we hear that they're the best stewards of the property. Do you agree with that? Can uh, what do farmers do to make sure that we address water pollution? Well, in the past, if a piece of ground had been farmed in the past, most farmers considered it a piece of farmland. Um, and so almost everyone that I know uh, does not have a, any kind of understanding about anything having to do with this case because it is such a an odd case uh, if you owned a piece of property and you had farmed it in the past and you continue to farm it in the same manner there has never been any question that you couldn't continue to do that now most farmers that i know if they take a piece of ground and they decide that they want to change change it from farmland to orchard or permanent crop they would then hire someone to study it. And then they, in that study would show the places that you, you can put your permanent crop, 
and it would show you the places that you could not plant. And in this case here, all I did while I owned the property was to do exactly what had done it been done in the past. So when I visit with my neighbors, they're just shocked that this, this ever happened. And they have no concept, even the government agencies that I visited, as this case moved forward, they were shocked that they, they had actually, when I met with them and they told me what I could do and what I could not do, they now are kind of in a place where they don't know what to do. I mean, when farmers walk in and into their office, they just have no idea how to direct them to keep them from having the same problem. Yeah, I mean, you hear the abuse. You can definitely appreciate what Paul has been talking about, the, the vagueness and just the impact that it has on farmers, ranchers, and just ordinary property owners all over the country. And that's why it's such a big concern for, for all of us. And we are running a little over, so I want to close it out, Paul, here. i got a question for you from the audience I wanted to ask you, if you just keep it really brief. Why doesn't a landowner have an automatic right to be notified of a wetland determination? and a right to appeal or to request mediation? A landowner should. I mean, it, it, it should clearly be the case that the government has the responsibility to notify you that it intends to open up an inquiry as to whether your land is covered. And it clearly should be the case that once they've made a decision, they have to notify you. I mean, it's just, you know, that, that rule finds its origin in Magna Carta, believe it or not. You, the government has an obligation not to take any action to trespass on your life, liberty, or property uh, without due process of law. And it's, it, it seems to me inconceivable that the government should just be able to order you not just to stop, but then not to let you know within a reasonable period of time what their decision is. But that doesn't mean that that's going to happen. The agencies don't have any interest sometimes in restraining their own authority. So thank you. Uh, if, if possible, um, be great if we could save the questions that we're getting, because there's a lot of questions and we try to get to a decent number of them. So I, Jack, Paul, Tony, I really want to thank you so much for joining us today. And I, I want to, thank the audience. First of all, great questions. And I want to thank you for participating in the program and also everybody watching the recording of this event. This event will be recorded and be available. I encourage you to visit heritage.org to learn more about the entire WOTUS issue. On this site, you're going to see a significant amount of work that Heritage has done on WOTUS and the Clean Water Act. And there's going to be a lot more to come. As you can see, there's a lot going on. Also, please visit the, the Heritage website for our other policy work and, of course, our future events. Again, thank you. Have a great day, and we look forward to seeing you, seeing you again soon.